everyone. We're going to read the Bible now. So if everybody could go grab their Bible and we're going to turn to Luke chapter 14 verses 15 to 24. So while you're opening up your Bible, I just want to say, hi, my name's Sarah Gillespie. I've been coming to Toongabbey Baptist Church for a very long time now. And I actually serve in the pastoral care ministry, doing the street ministry. Okay, so let's get into the reading. So again, it's Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. Parable of the Great Feast. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. So the master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so, that house, so the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will even get the smallest taste of my banquet. Thank you. Well, it's great to be with you today, Toon Gabby. Uh, why don't we pray together as uh, we look at this Bible passage in Luke 14. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you so much for uh, the means uh, by which to be around your word together. Uh, thank you so much for your kindness in making this possible. And Lord, we need your help now as we sit under your word. Uh, we need your spirit to be at work to help us to understand and to believe what we are reading. We ask that you would please bring conviction to our hearts, that you would bring reassurance where we need it. Uh, but above all, that you would lift up your son, Jesus, that we would see him clearly and that we would worship and trust and love him more as a result of what we read today. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever been in one of those situations where the tension in the air is so thick that you could cut it with a knife. You know those kind of situations? I can think back to more than a few 21st birthday speeches uh, that I was listening to for friends of mine, where the person giving the speech, you know, just did a bit too much oversharing, a few too many salacious details in their story. And everybody in the room knew that this person giving the speech was stepping over the line, but nobody had the heart to stop them. And so there's that awkward silence as everyone's just looking at each other, wondering, when, when is this train wreck going to end? You know those kind of situations. Maybe you've been in those kind of situations with your family in the past. You know, those large family gatherings where awkward Uncle Barry, you know Uncle Barry, the one who's into the healing power of crystals, you know, he's, he's just doing his sales pitch again for, for why you really ought to invest all your money into those healing crystals of his. And again, nobody quite knows what to say. It's just, it's tense. Do you know those kind of situations? I hate being in those kind of situations because you, you never quite know what to do, how to defuse the tension, right? You know, you, you just, if you're like me, you slowly want to start backing out of the room so that you're just no longer there. 
I mean, one of the things I tend to do in those situations is just look down, you know, check your phone. Oh, how convenient. There was a message I needed to check right this moment. Just tune me out. Pretend I'm not there. Avoid eye contact <laughs> by any means possible. That's the best way to get out of those awkward social situations, I reckon. Now, as we come to the middle of Luke chapter 14 today, it's that kind of a, an awkward, tense social situation which we find ourselves in the middle of. If you remember last week, uh, your pastor James, he preached from the beginning of this chapter uh, where Jesus has been invited into a Pharisee's home to eat a very important meal, eat the Sabbath meal uh, with the Pharisee and his guests. It's the most important meal of the week. And Jesus has not been shy so far in this chapter about telling his hosts and telling the other guests what he really thinks about them. And the tension has just been mounting. He's taken aim at their self-righteousness, at their arrogance, at their presumption, at their hypocrisy. And you see, the issue that Jesus has been addressing all the way back since the middle of chapter 13 is this question of who belongs in the kingdom of God. Who is it that the kingdom of God is for and who is going to be left out? And Jesus has been pointing the finger directly at his host and at the other guests at this party. And he's saying that attitudes like theirs show that they have no place in the kingdom of God. I mean, what an incredibly awkward thing to do at a dinner party. I'm sure that nobody at that scene kind of quite knew how to, how to take Jesus or how to respond or, or where to look. You know, it's a social disaster at this point and I reckon that you could have cut the tension with a knife. So as we pick up our story in verse 15, uh, this guy kind of pipes up and he tries, I think, to defuse the situation. Um, this is someone who thinks, oh, I could, if I could just say the right thing, then everybody would just, the tension would de-escalate a little bit. And so he pipes up and he says, well, you know, I always like to say, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I mean, <laughs> you know, we can all agree on that, can't we, Jesus, Pharisees? Like, blessed is the one who's going to eat at the kingdom of God. I mean, he's, a, he's probably a very lovely bloke. You've got to admire the attempt, but he's not a very thoughtful man. Because he gives this kind of uh, standard upper class Jewish platitude, really, to try and smooth it all over. Essentially, he's just saying, oh, guys, won't it all be great when we're all together in heaven? And sadly, it just expresses more of that, that misplaced confidence that has been the problem with this whole social circle. All of the people who've come to this snobby party, their spiritual complacency that Jesus has been taking aim at. I mean, has the, this guy in verse 15, has he even been listening to Jesus? He certainly hasn't processed it. And so Jesus kind of seizes on this statement, this moment. He says, okay, you want to talk about the kingdom of God? Well, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. And so he tells them then a parable starting in verse 16. So let's have a look at this parable. Verse 16 a certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. Now, this host, he's obviously a generous host. He, he wants to share uh, this celebration with many, many people. And this kind of picture it would have been a familiar scene for Jesus's listeners. They would have known very well this kind of imagery of a wedding banquet, that it was kind of like a metaphor from the Old Testament. It was a picture, in fact, 
not of an actual wedding, but of God's banquet, of, on that day when God will finally bring his kingdom and when there will be this great celebration that will surpass anything in all of history. This wedding banquet here in this parable is an image of heaven. And so the guests at this, uh, this party that Jesus is speaking this parable in, they would have been used to thinking about God's kingdom through that metaphor of a banquet. But Jesus, he puts a spin on that familiar metaphor. And I think in, in the parable that he tells, there are at least three major surprises which are designed, I think, to shock the audience, to shock those spiritually complacent people, those people who are spiritually presumptuous, thinking that they automatically have a place in the kingdom of God. Three surprises that we're going to look at today. The first surprise that we're going to find in this story is that the feast is now ready. Let's pick up again, verse 17. At the time of the banquet, he, that is the master, sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, for a Jewish person, whenever they thought about that great banquet, God's great banquet, it was always, in their mind, a future event. Uh, that's what the prophets of Israel had been saying for centuries throughout the Old Testament, sending out the invitation to come to, to a future banquet, saying that day of feasting and celebration, the day of the kingdom, it's coming, it's coming. It's always been a future event. It had never actually been a present event. But Jesus says with his arrival, it's now come. It's imminent. It's now ready. It's just like if you can remember all the way back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4, that, that scene where Jesus enters the synagogue in his own uh, hometown of Nazareth and he stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah that's given to him and he picks uh, the passage from Isaiah 61. And do you remember what he says as he reads Isaiah 61? He says, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. Today, Jesus said, it had never been today, spiritually speaking. It had always been one day. It's coming, it's coming. But with the arrival of Jesus, he says, it's today. And that should have been a massive shock to the listeners. Now, lately, we've all gotten quite used, I think, to waiting, haven't we? Uh, waiting for this lockdown to end. Uh, waiting last year for a vaccine to be developed, waiting for the rollout of the vaccine, waiting for an appointment for the vaccine perhaps, waiting for this whole COVID thing to go away. We've done a lot of waiting. And, and we know, don't we, that returning to normal, well, that's still going to be a ways off in the future for us probably, isn't it? But can you imagine if tomorrow morning you tuned in to Gladys's press conference and she strolled out onto the stage, big smile on her face, and she said, great news, everyone. Yeah, it turns out that this whole virus has just evaporated overnight. There's, there's zero cases today, zero fatalities. And so here's the good news, everyone. We're going to open back up effective immediately. Uh, no more lockdowns, no more restrictions, no more face masks. You can take those holidays that you've been delaying for the last couple of years. Get together with a big group of friends, as many as you want. Hug them, kiss them, do whatever you want. Sing your hearts out because the day has finally arrived. Happy days. I mean, can you imagine the sense of joy that you would feel if you were told that that future far off day that you've been longing for for so long that it's here now. 
that excitement, <laughs> that should have been what a Jewish person would have felt at the announcement that God's banquet had come. It was now time, says Jesus, for that great celebration with God to begin. Now, what's even more shocking, I think, is what Jesus says about the banquet in verse 24 at the end of our passage. So if you have a look uh, down towards the end of the passage there, uh, Jesus says this, verse 24, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, you can't really see it in the English translation here, but that word you, in the beginning of verse 24, I tell you, it's a plural you. So it's, you know, Jesus is saying, I tell yous, right? He's speaking to a, a multiple group of people. And so realize what's going on here. Verse 24 is not the master in the story giving that announcement to the people in the room. This is Jesus giving that announcement to the people that he's speaking to at this banquet. It can't still be the master in the story because look at verse 23. The master speaks to his servant, singularly speaking to one person, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so my house will be full. Verse 24, I tell you, plural, it shifts. And so the parable has finished in verse 23. And now this is Jesus. Hear it again through Jesus' own lips to the people at this dinner party that he's at. Jesus says to them, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Did you catch that last bit? <laughs> Whose banquet is it? Jesus says it's his banquet. He is the one who's throwing this party at the end of the age. He is the one who is bringing the kingdom of God. You are looking at him. He's standing in your midst. That's the message here. And that is an astounding claim. And that's the first surprise that we find in this story. The second surprise that you find in this story is how all of the guests here make excuses. Now, in order to understand kind of what's going on with these excuses that you read, you need to get your heads around a little bit of uh, first century party etiquette, a little bit of a history lesson. So in the days before supermarkets and before refrigerators, uh, if you were throwing a party, you would send out an invitation several days beforehand and you would ask for RSVPs. You'd be asking people to give an indication of whether they were gonna come or not because then you would know the number of people that you needed to prepare food for. And so once you got all your RSVPs a week out, you would then slaughter the cattle, you'd butcher the goats, you'd bake the bread, you'd set the table, all that stuff. And then when the preparations were finally complete, you would actually send out a second invitation. Uh, and the messenger would go round into the village to all the people who had RSVP'd and said, hey guys, it's all ready now, time to come, come to the party, the food's on the table, come and eat. And so with that background, you can understand how it would have been the height of rudeness after you'd already accepted the first invitation, only to announce at the last minute, oh, I'm sorry, I can't come actually, I've got something better to do. Well, I mean, you said you were coming, you RSVP'd. Your host has prepared for you. No expense has been spared. This is a great feast that's being thrown. I mean, it's an outrageous, it's an unthinkable insult to do that to a host. But that's what happens. Let's read from verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. 
Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. <laughs> now those excuses, they're civil. I mean, they're politely expressed, but that's just what an excuse is, isn't it? One old preacher put it like this. He said that an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. The skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. It sounds like a reason, but it's actually just filled up with a lie. Because think about, think about these excuses. I mean, who buys a block of land without checking it out first? Nobody does that. And I mean, the block of land is still going to be there the next day, isn't it? You can go to the party tonight and check out the block of land tomorrow. What about the other excuse? Who buys 10 oxen without first doing your due diligence? I mean, there's a lot of money tied up in an investment like that. You'd check it out first, wouldn't you? But of course, the best excuse is that last one, the marriage one. I mean, this is a classic. You can always just, you know, give the excuse, oh, my wife won't let me, you know. I may have made that excuse myself a few times. But really, when they accepted this invitation earlier on, when they gave their RSVP, they knew they were getting married later in the week, didn't they? You knew that right now you'd be unavailable on your honeymoon or whatever. So what is this excuse? Their reasons stuffed with a lie. That's really all those excuses are. It's all any excuse is. Because let's just kind of talk honestly here. No one else is listening. This is private, just between you and me. I wonder, have you ever received an invitation to a party that you just didn't want to go to? You ever had one of those come in the mail, you open it up and you groan. You think, I don't want to be there. I don't want to go to this thing. Let me ask you, when you RSVP no, did you tell the truth about why you didn't want to go to that party, did you? No, of course you didn't. You didn't tell the truth. No one ever tells the truth and says, no, I don't want to go to your stinking party. I don't like you. I don't think it'll be very fun. You no, know, you make up an excuse. Says, oh, oh, I can't come. I've got something on that day. You know, you've done it. I've done it. We've all done it. Let's be honest. Why do we do that? Because at the end of the day, we just don't want to go. We don't think the party will be any good, will be any fun. We don't want to spend our time with the person who's inviting us. We think our time could be better spent elsewhere. So we cover it up with a reason. We make up a lie. It's our excuse. Let me ask you, why do you think some people refuse God's invitation to his banquet in heaven? I mean, people like to think that they've got legitimate reasons to say no to God, don't they? You know, we all think of ourselves, I think, as you know, open-minded, rational, objective kind of people. We're all seeking after the truth. I mean, maybe we just, you know, we're just not convinced by the evidence yet. That's why we'll say no to God. Um, there's a, an atheist philosopher named Bertrand Russell. And famously, he was asked once, well, what, what will you say, Bertrand, if you're wrong about this whole God thing and you wake up one day after death and you're standing before God, your creator? If God says to you, Bertrand Russell, why didn't you believe in me? How are you going to answer God, Bertrand? And Bertrand Russell defiantly said that he would stand there before God and he would just say, not enough evidence, God. That's why I didn't believe in you. Not enough evidence. You, you get the tone of what Bertrand Russell was saying. It's, it's not my fault, God. It's your fault. I, I'm not to blame for, the, for saying no to you, God. You're to blame for that. I mean, people convince themselves all the time, don't they, that I, you know, I've done my best to be a good person in this life, and if that's not good enough for God, well, then that's his problem. But let's be real. That's not his problem. It's your problem. It will be your very great problem when you finally stand before God. Because all of our excuses are just reasons stuffed with lies. 
the truth is that we reject God's invitation because deep down we just don't want to go. We don't think that his party in heaven will be any good. We don't want to be with him forever. We think that our time could be better spent doing something else. And so we make excuses just like the guests in this story. And it's a scandal. That's the second surprise as we read Luke 14. The third surprise that we find is about who actually attends the banquet instead. So let me read for you from verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, uh, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country, country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Now, the, the reaction of the host here, his anger at his rejection, that's to be expected. But what's not expected here is the host's grace. Because as one group rejects the invitation, God, who is the host here, the master of the banquet, God is so generous, so kind, that in the face of rejection, he simply turns to another group and he says, okay, there's room for you now at my banquet, come in. Now, if you remember back uh, to verse 13 from last week, where, where Jesus rebuked the host for the way that he'd chosen his guest. Do you remember that? He'd filled his particular party with all of the social elite. They were the moral, they were the upstanding, the proud, the religiously complacent ones. Uh, they were the ones who were so sure that they were blessed. The ones who knew they thought that they would eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. They were so sure of it. And the stunning surprise is that actually when it comes to that heavenly banquet, the very ones God will choose to fill his house are the very ones that they would never have invited to theirs. The ones Jesus told the host he should invite, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the down and outs, the unwashed, right? Really what this is a, this is a picture of what's being described here is the Gentiles. That's the picture that's going on here because the, the Jewish people would never have imagined that God would invite them, people outside of Israel. They seem so totally far away, so unworthy of entering into God's people. But you see, the point is unmissable, isn't it? The, the Jews were the ones to whom the first invitation came. They were the ones for who hundreds of years had had that invitation from the prophets. Come, come to the kingdom of God, come to the feast. They were so privileged, the Jews. The great feast was their heritage. It was their birthright. But of course, the danger of their privilege was presumption. And they had made the fatal error of presuming that they were right with God just because of their respectability. And Jesus says, no, you've refused the invitation and now the kingdom is being given to the down and outs, to the people that you would never expect. You know, if you're anything like me, then it's pr probably pretty easy for you to assume that there is absolutely no hope that the kid down the road who is always stoned, that the kingdom of God is actually for him. Or that the, the woman that we know around the block who's on her third marriage, well, the kingdom of God's not for her. Or the bloke who gets kicked out of the pub at closing time every Saturday night, he's got no chance with God. It's pretty easy to assume that. 
But we have to remember, friends, that those people are the very people for whom the Lord Jesus came. The lowly, the meek, the sick, the lost. Back in the 18th century in England, when uh, the Anglican Church uh, refused to allow uh, George Whitfield and Charles Wesley to preach in their churches, uh, George uh, Whitfield and Charles Wesley decided, instead of trying to sort of force their way into Anglican parishes to get an opportunity to preach, what they would do is just go bush. And so they went out into the fields to preach, and that was quite a controversial thing for them to do at the time. George Whitfield, in particular, he set out for a town called Kingswood, a little town just outside the city of Bristol. And there was no established church in Kingswood, not one that had lasted anyway. There was no school there either. What there was in, in Kingswood were lots of coal miners, thousands of them. It was a giant coal mine in the town. And these coal miners, you can imagine in the 18th century, were working in deplorable conditions. Men, women, children working in the mines for 13 to 18 hours a day. And the people in Kingswood were famous at the time for their vicious treatment of outsiders, of strangers who would come into the town. Uh, they were famous actually for their violence towards nearby towns. And so the established church, the Church of England, had no interest in trying to reach them. They were the last people on earth that most churches were interested in. But Whitfield, when he looked at Kingswood, what he saw were sheep without a shepherd. And so within a month of his going to, to go there to preach amongst them, he would regularly draw gatherings in excess of 20,000 people in these fields to hear him preach. And what happened in that moment was a massive revival broke out as God's spirit convicted people of their sin and of their need for a savior and of the incredible offer of eternal life that Jesus was holding out to them. And the history books record how thousands of miners were moved to tears at the announcement of the gospel to them and how their tears would make these white gutters down their coal blackened faces. The ones who had seemed so far away, so unlikely, so unworthy, they were the ones that God was bringing into his kingdom. You know, Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. And so it should never surprise us that he goes in search of the lost. The only obstacle is knowing that you're lost, <laughs> knowing that you're unworthy, knowing that you could never hope to repay the grace of the host. It's those type of people who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So as we draw this to a close, what do these three surprises mean for us? Is there anything that we can draw out of this that ought to shape the way that we live, the way that we interact with others, the way that we view God. Well, I think there are three lessons actually that we need to learn from this parable. And the first one that we need to learn is that there is a warning here to be heeded, a warning to be heeded. Because as we hear Jesus' surprising story to these spiritually complacent people, it's easy to see that the same refusal is taking place today. Uh, men and women are turning their backs on the kingdom of God with just that same arrogance that Jesus condemns here. They reject the invitation to God's banquet for the sake of mere trivialities in this life, material gain, personal pleasure, sexual adventure. Do you know, my experience as a pastor is that the people who choose not to receive God's invitation, it's not usually got anything to do with failing to be convinced by the historical evidence or something. Actually, when you scratch beneath the surface, it's usually trivialities that stop them 
from entering the kingdom of God. You know, I, I've got a career to pursue. I'm, you know, I'm just too busy. There's this relationship that I want to develop. It would just be too inconvenient for me to become a Christian now. Well, my social life is, is too important. You know, I, it'd be too costly for me to say yes. Well, I'm worried about my, what it might do to my reputation with my family. You know, it's just too public to, to hitch my wagon to Jesus. This parable is here to warn us. Don't assume that you've got a place at God's table if you are sidelining the Lord Jesus. Because if you don't want him here and now, then what makes you think that you'll want him there and then on that final day? If you're not accepting the invitation to come and to draw near here and now, you'll not be any different there and then. No, you're deluding yourself if you think that. So be warned, friends. God is justifiably angry at the people who disrespect him and insult him and treat trivial things as if they are of ultimate importance. Because underneath those excuses is simply a heart that doesn't want God. So be warned. I think the second thing that this parable has got to teach us is that there is a mission to pursue. A mission to pursue. Have a look again at verse 23. The master says to his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. That last phrase is interesting, isn't it? Uh, so that my house will be full. Uh, in these words, what we are hearing is the master's generosity. We're hearing that the master longs to open his house. The great desire of the master is to share his happiness. And so he says, compel people to come in, which is a fascinating word. Uh, in, in the course of history, verse 23 of Luke 14 was famously used as the proof text for the Spanish Inquisition, which is a real tragedy. The Spanish Inquisition, where uh, people were compelled by any means necessary to be converted to Catholicism, often involving torture. Well, they saw verse 23 as a justification for that. Is that what God is telling us? Use any means necessary to bring people into my kingdom. Well, I don't think so. I don't think that's at all what God means there when he says compel people to come in. I think what's going on in this verse is the reality that for many people, they will simply be reluctant to come because they think, well, no, I'm... I, God couldn't invite me. I'm so unworthy. God would never have me at his banquet. So for many people, this invitation into the kingdom of God is going to sound too good to be true. And so it's the job of the master's servants, that's you and I, to compel people, to convince people that, yes, of course God will have you. He will never turn away anyone who truly comes to him empty-handed, knowing how needy and how unworthy they truly are. The job of the servant is to convince people, actually, that unworthiness is the exact qualification that you need to attend this feast. And I reckon I would be shocked if you don't have friends in your life for whom that would be a great surprise. So... What this means for us is that we need to be convinced, actually, that this is what our master is like, that, this is, that he really is like this, that he's not just you know, looking for respectable, upper-middle-class people like you and I. No, actually, that our master is much more generous than that. He's far more kind than that. He wants to share his happiness with everyone, and he's committed to doing so. We need to be convinced, friends, and I hope you are, that God's banquet 
will actually be full and that the message about God's grace towards unworthy people, that that will be irresistible to some people. I mean, doesn't that fill you with confidence to, to invite people to share the gospel, to speak about Jesus, knowing that the master is committed to this, knowing that some people, not all people, but some people will definitely say yes, knowing that there will be no empty seats in heaven. Doesn't that fill you with confidence? We've got a mission to pursue together, friends. The third lesson I think that this teaches us is that there is an invitation to accept. Because the king of heaven has extended to you and I the kindest of invitations. We have been invited to come and to eat in the feast in the kingdom of God. And to such an invitation, there are really only one of two answers. If you say wait, you are saying no. If you say later, you are saying no. If you say I'm too busy, you're saying no. If you're saying don't rush me, you're saying no. So stop saying no. Say yes. Do it today. Put aside all your excuses. Come, for everything is now ready, says Jesus. You know, the the Bible's vision of heaven is so fabulous. Such a great picture that scripture gives us of this, this feast, this party, this celebration, like a wedding reception full of joy for eternity. I love wedding receptions. You know, my favorite thing about a wedding reception, <laughs> there's lots of things to enjoy about wedding receptions, but my favorite thing right now is for me at least, wedding receptions are free. <laughs> I've paid for one wedding reception in my lifetime and I won't pay for another until my daughter gets married. But for now, someone else pays. <laughs> They've done all the work. They've done all the preparation. And so I get to simply just come and enjoy and have a fantastic time on someone else's dime. Friends, that is what God is doing. He generously invites us to come and to enjoy. And that is an invitation, not just for some far off day in the future. It's an invitation for today. Today is the day of salvation. So won't you come and take your seat at the feast in the kingdom of God? Let me pray for us. Gracious, kind, generous master, we thank you that you are committed to sharing your happiness, that you have invited us, us who are so unworthy and so undeserving. And so, Lord, please convict us that we bring nothing to qualify us for this invitation. Convict us that our unworthiness makes us qualified. Thank you so much, Jesus, for making this feast available to us. I pray for all my friends at Toon Gabby that you would please help them to not make excuses, but to say yes and to help others to say yes to this incredible offer. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.